Welcome back to Grizzle Live, everybody. We're here for a special episode. We have a guest. We're going to talk uh, yeah, to a yeah. man, a myth, a legend on Twitter. <laughs> it, Twitter, it's Substack. Substack Twitter. He's uh, owning it all. Yeah. It's Alex His Morris. home base is uh, Substack, but he hangs out on Twitter sometimes, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the science of hitting. I love that, man. I love it. Let's bring him on. All right, let's do Alex. it. Alex Morris, what's up, Alex man? Morris, what's up, my man? Welcome to the show. That's pretty generous, that intro. I'm not even going to try to defend <laughs> or refute any of it. <laughs> yeah, don't refute it. No, man. Uh, We're here well, to pump I'll... you up, so you, you take it all. Yeah. Just take it all. Yeah. You've done it. We can end the pot. We're done now. Just end it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Well, hey, listen, Alex, a big thanks for, for coming on. And, and honestly, a big fan of, you know, uh, what you've done. Uh, this is – we're in a – crazy time right now we, we're seeing so much great research available uh on you know outside of the broker realm right you know just it it's we're, we're living through uh disruption a revolution and you're like right in the core of it in terms of getting access to high quality insights uh laying it out Alex, you want to just give a bit of an intro about your pathway how you got here obviously um you know you you're a, you're a veteran in the industry, but but for those don't, who don't know your backstory. Alex, I want to hear how you made the first jump to be like, man, I think I might want to be doing something different and how you got started writing on the internet. Cause that's, that's not for a lot of people. So I'd be interested to hear how you, you know, got on that path. Perfect. Yeah. I'll tile that in. Thanks for having me guys. First of all. So not to go back too far when I was in college, I really didn't know what I was trying to do. My dad's a plumber. So I went to school for building construction. I did that for a year or two, and I realized it wasn't for me. And around that time, I, I stumbled upon the, the Warren Buffett shareholder letters. So I started reading those, went to a Berkshire Hathaway meeting, which was a lot of fun, and I kind of just became obsessed. So I switched my major to finance. Um, but after doing that for the next two years or so, when it came time to graduate and actually get a job, I had no ability to really get into the industry. It seemed like every, I reached out to, I think like 40 mutual funds or fund manager type people and said, Hey, I'm, you know, 21, but I'm really interested in the subject. I'd love to work at your shop. And the response was universal. Come talk to us when you have an MBA, get some experience. Yeah. So when you you're know, already real, real doing the job, then come, you can do the job for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then Typical, you can come work yeah. for us at which point you'll be overqualified. Yeah, but anyways, yeah. uh, so, so so I needed to figure out how to bridge that that gap. And I thought one way to do it was maybe to start writing online to try to get my name out there, start sharing my work. Fantastic. So I start I started doing that. And uh, I don't know if it actually ever helped me find my first job or not. But anyways, I, I started doing <laughs> it and I've, I've kept doing it ever since. So I went to work for, for a small firm in Jacksonville, Florida, an RIA. I went back to, to UF a few years later and got my MBA, got a CFA along the way moved to a different firm in Savannah, Georgia, another RIA managing around a billion dollars. And the whole time I was just doing equity research. That was always what I wanted my focus to be. I did a little bit of client facing stuff, but I, I just love the investment process and, and thinking about equities. So, and again, at the same time, I was still doing a lot of writing and making money on the side, but it was, but it wasn't enough where it could ever sustain a sustain a career, not even not even particularly close. So, Alex, so, can, can I rewind just there, just a little bit, just yeah. to understand? So, you were working at these RIs, and at the whole time, you were still writing on Twitter. I want to say, uh, like, the, and and uh, were, were were you were you like in terms of what were you doing on the side? And just just so I understand how others can you know take your model because obviously it's you know you built. 
you built a core strong following and you, you know how that all just uh if you could unbox that sure sure so for a long time i was just writing on guru focus and i had a pseudonym because of the first firm i went to you know they they were concerned about i guess you would call them regulatory issues with me writing publicly under my name even though i was mostly writing about large caps and stuff i actually own but they were they were tentative about that. So that's when I started the science of hitting and that's the name I still use today. Um, it was it was years later when I think it was Trevor Scott, a guy on Twitter that most people probably already follow, but I think he's the one who told me like, dude, you gotta, you gotta get on Twitter. There's just a ton of people here talking about ideas, really smart people. And thankfully I listened to him. So yeah, Twitter came a couple of years later, um, but it definitely, I saw it help with the audience and it was a way to expand the network and, you know, it definitely played a huge role in me deciding to to kind of go direct to my readers. And, and Twitter itself, just uh, when did you get onto Twitter? And you, you know, like how did that? Did did you leave that other? Uh, what was that other? What was that other platform you were on? I'm just trying to understand. You know, just yeah, Twitter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was on Guru Focus, which I continued yep. to write on. I wrote long. I wrote long form articles there. Okay. I just checked right now. I joined Twitter in 2017. So wow. Yeah, for for the last you know, four years or so, I was just simultaneously publishing on both platforms. Incredible. Yeah. And it's, and it's just wild, like, right, you, you produce great content, like this is that classic, uh, you know, if, if, if you have a desire to be a research analyst, uh, you know, be an act, you know, pick, pick, pick stocks, you know, don't wait for that company to call you up. Just, you know, start writing, right? And, and that's, yeah, that's, the, the, that's the hustle because you, how do you learn any better than just doing research and then putting money to work and being like, oh, that was wrong. Not going to do that again, right? That's that's right. a good way to, to come up the curve quick. No, writing publicly has been, for me, it's it's been one of the most valuable things that I've done. I mean, when I moved to the, to the, second, the second firm that I worked for, it was a non-negotiable for me to still continue to write on the science of hitting because I had, built a built a network of people who amazing they helped me be a better investor and if that's what i was going to the firm to do to help them with investing so wow. it didn't make it didn't make any sense to me so i i just was not open to that idea and thankfully they were okay with that yeah exactly what what, what an incredible new template right this is like you know, you don't have to wait for anything. Just do it. Just start writing. And, you know, just and I'll definitely say, you know, when we came on Twitter now, it's over three years ago. Uh, you know, we we didn't actually like we weren't even allowed to use Twitter at the bank. And, you know, it's all just, you know, the nonsense of it all. It's just all corporate structure. But then you just realize, you know, the access to information, the access to just feedback is just incredible. And it really does make you a better investor. Yeah, 100 percent. It, it, it helps so much. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how was the feedback for you? Because you started writing, you know, you're like, is anyone reading this? And then you're like, oh, people are actually reading this. And then were some people giving you feedback and it improved your process or what you wrote about over time? Yeah, one of the big ways that it, it really helps me is when I when I write a draft and I sit down and actually read it. And I, I think of people like my friends, Francisco Oliveira or Bill Brewster. I just think about people that I respect as investors. And if they were reading this article, what parts sentences they pick out and go you know that's kind of bs that wasn't that wasn't actually explained very well you're presenting that as being evidently true when it's not you need to give data to support that conclusion so things like that for for me that's hugely helpful and then obviously there's times where i post something and someone will dm me and say you know i had a guy dm me hey i used to work in supply chain for a big cpg company i have an intimate understanding of how costco's supply chain is different from most other retailers and he walked me through it oh, and wow. it was an 
it was an insight that I would never, I had some idea of what he was saying as he was saying it, but he just solidified it in a way that I would have never got there without him. So that's great that people are willing to give their time because give you some background on the sell side. You learn similar ways because you have really smart investors picking apart all your thesis on everything, but they're not mm-hmm. always willing to go out of their way and say, well, let me explain it to you. They just say, this is stupid. This is wrong. And so then you go figure it out. But that's great that you're, you're meeting people that are willing to say, you know, I have this built up institutional knowledge. I'm going to pass it on to you. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's really what Twitter is, right? I mean, it's, it's, there's always some bickering and some stuff that's not constructive, but at the end of the day, the vast majority of stuff that I see on the platform is people basically helping each other out or trying to get to some version of the truth. Yeah. yeah. So Alex, as, as people are like looking at your Substack and trying to figure out what type of investor you are, like how would you describe, you know, the type of investor you are? Cause I, I looked at your portfolio. I saw you don't have any of those like meme stocks. You don't have any high flying like tech stocks trading at 50 times sales. You have some, some stalwarts. Like how, how have you navigated this market and what type of investor would you say you are? Yeah, I'd say above all else, I'm a, I'm a high quality long-term investor is how I, I tend to think about it, which, you know, naturally it leads me to the kind of businesses, the kind of balance sheets, the kind of management teams where I really think I have uh, a line of sight to what the business looks like at least five years down the road and, and hopefully some sense of what it looks like 10 years down the road to try to, to intelligently think about what the cash flow dynamics and what the valuation should look like, et cetera. So that's really where I start from having some view of where I think the business will be in five to 10 years, which does a great job of knocking a, a lot of names off the list <laughs> because <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of industries or specific companies where I don't think I have great line of sight to what it's gonna look like in the future. Um, so that that's really where I start. And then you know, another component that's become more important for me over time is really partnering with people that I trust and not feeling the need. I mean, obviously, everybody's going to make mistakes, but not feeling the need to nitpick every decision they make or be worried that they're going to do M&A because it doesn't align with my view of what they should be. Do- you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. really having trust in in the vision and the management of the people in charge. So I think those two ideas are probably the, the most important parts of my foundation as an investor. And then the valuation component is something that's always uh, a little bit harder to get your arms around, but paying a reasonable price, whatever that means, obviously yeah. it differs depending on the situation, but that that's a very important part of it all as well. Well, you know, when, when you write in and just understanding, like it really comes across your desire to find great management teams. I, you know, the, the Costco pieces that you, you've written have just been phenomenal, right? Like, you know, I, Costco for me has always been a great example of a of a company. When you unbox it, you just see just how how amazing this what management can do and what can, what can it deliver in seemingly a very basic business. And it is really functionally you're selling. You know, it's it's just a retail business, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's spot on. I think it's I've made this point a couple of times lately. I think it's really interesting to think about businesses that, to your point, I mean, effectively they're doing the same thing as everything everybody else in terms yeah. of selling peanut butter or chicken or whatever it might be. The idea that you could create a really good business, a sustainably good business in that space, to me, that just strikes me as somewhere that you should 100% be studying and thinking about as you you try to look for good business models for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. So from what you explained, it sounds like you have a lot of discipline and that's really helped you stay away from some of these landmines in the market. 
I'm wondering, you know, in 2020, going into early 2021, when you saw these companies, say tech in particular, people were like, oh, this company's the future of this. This company's the future of that. And the stock was really running. How did how did you keep the discipline to say, oh, maybe I am dip a toe in here? You were like, the valuations are crazy and I'm just going to wait, even if I think this could be a good business. Like, how, how'd you, you know, keep the discipline to not go dipping your toe like everyone else was? Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, there, there's pros and cons to this point of view, but I'm, I'm someone who's very comfortable with the idea that there's thousands of publicly traded companies and there's going to be a large number of them that are going to do very, very well. And I'm going to miss almost all of them or maybe all. Of them. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very comfortable with that idea. I'm very comfortable with identifying the companies that I that I really think I can understand and then focusing essentially all of my time and attention on them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, obviously, as prices move and and things appear to be getting very cheap that that draws out my instinct to kind of go hunting a little bit. And I did I did some of that in March 2020. And, you know, it led me to a couple of smaller positions where after the course of six or 12 months, it helped that they did well. Obviously, the market overall did really well coming out of that period. But after six to 12 months for me, I, I looked at the portfolio and I went, you know, this is a 3% position. In my mind, that's not really enough to move the needle in a big way. Yeah, yeah. Do I actually believe in this thesis or not? And if I believe in it, then why why is the position sizing, in my mind, pretty small? So I kind of, I put it to myself to either make them larger or get them out of the portfolio. Um, and that that's partly why to what we discussed right before we jumped on the call. That's part of the reason why when I launched my Substack, I had a higher cash balance than I'd uh, historically run with because I had sold a couple of positions that I didn't want to make five or 10% position. Gotcha. And and so ultimately, how many holdings do you do you do you think you're running with? Uh, the you know you, over a long period of time, what, what do you think is your your ideal? Number? I typically I typically land in probably the ten to thirteen somewhere in that area. Oh, with wow. yeah, like for example, I mean it's obviously it's it's top weighted. My my two largest positions at the end of the second quarter were Microsoft and Berkshire Hathaway, and they were around forty percent of the portfolio. So or thirty percent. <laughs> forget sometimes yeah yeah yeah. i like it yeah so you, you go hard you understand a company well and that gives you the confidence to have a higher weighting to it and so you don't want to be too diversified but you want to be a, a little diversified so nothing blows you up yeah that's fair i mean and again you know the idea of being uncomfortable or or worrying about risk i get how it's related to position sizing but microsoft being a massive position in march 2020 never bothered me for a single second I, no. it was it was, it's just a bump in the, I mean, unless the world's going to end, they're as, they're as well positioned financially as they possibly can be. They have a ton of structural tailwinds behind them. It's just a temporary drawdown on something like that doesn't bother me. So maybe, maybe that's part of the reason why I'm really comfortable with big positions in certain companies. And in terms of valuation, how do you think about that in terms of like, obviously you got this core position, um, you know, you, you go back in time, you know, I think about the positions I've had where, my biggest mistakes were always just selling because it was hitting some sort of upper valuation band. And then I never, you know, never really got back into a full position. And I'm like, why did I do that? You know, it just, how do you think about these great companies you've identified? Obviously you get great buying opportunities uh, like last year, March. What, what, how do you think about just scaling in and out or, or do you just say, listen, this is, this is where I sit and I don't need to you know unravel this. Yeah. I've gone back and forth on this a lot. I think, you know, two of the two of the big things that stand out to me as I thought about this over time is one having 
a relatively consistent asset allocation. And for me, you know, I'm in my I'm in my 30s. I plan on saving for let's call it the next 20 plus years. Um, for me, a, a reasonable asset allocation feels like something around 90% equities. So one thing I I try to do is to keep a fairly fairly tight band around that for the sake of not, I mean, effectively market timing. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I if I'm really struggling to find stuff to buy, maybe I'll pull that back to 85 or 80 percent equities. But I don't want to be in the game of holding huge cash positions because I've just seen how many struggles that can create for people who, in the grand scheme of things, are really good uh, investors, really good stock pickers. But they get they get stuck playing another game that just adds a level of difficulty that I don't want to introduce. So that's one kind of forcing function that that requires me to. Okay, you want to sell X, Y, Z. You need to find somewhere to put the capital. So if everything's running, obviously that makes the decision a lot harder. Um, so that's kind of the first way that I think about it. The other, the other layer I've added on over time is really requiring that the truly rare great businesses, which obviously that requires some ability to determine whether or not something actually is rare and great. But to the extent you think you found one of those, yeah. I've really forced myself to demand a rare valuation in exchange for letting go of that business because it's just so hard to replace. Yeah, so, you know, it's, all, it's always a balance, but. Hey, we, we got a question. Uh, are you cool with us uh, doing some Q&A? Sure. All right, so this is from Michael. Yes, right, you wanna hear uh, yeah, he's, he's saying, Alex, what is an example of a big mistake that taught you the most in investing? Oh gosh, well, I've had a, I've had a number of good ones. Uh, JC Penny was a really good one to have made because I got in around the time of uh, Ackman investing and Ron Johnson was hired as the CEO and there was a lot going on there. And when I look back on what really happened and where I think I made a mistake, the first one was I think I outsourced part of the research essentially to Ackman and I relied too much on what he saw in the business as opposed to demanding myself to do some of that work. Um, another component of it that I think was a mistake was I didn't uh, I didn't properly assess how their results in the years leading up to the financial crisis were likely benefiting from some of the things that were going on there in terms of housing and what impact that had on furniture sales, you know, house goods, things like that. So I don't think I really thought too intelligently about what the earnings power had been like over the past five or so years and, and what that suggested about the future. And the last point would be tied to that one. I just don't think I ever took a step back and thought, is this actually a good business? Is this going in the right direction? Why will this be stronger in five to 10 years? And I think if I had really done that, I would have recognized that I was I was chasing an idea that that somebody else liked as uh, less so than something that I truly loved or believed in long term. So that was a pretty notable one. So th this takes me to a question, actually. So do you look for good businesses that you're going to hold for a long time? Or do you also look for undervalued businesses that may be turning around? Or is it just good businesses that are doing well now? Yeah, my primary filter at this point, and I try to stick to this as much as I can, which sometimes I stray, but my primary filter is ensuring that I'm investing in a high quality business with a high quality management team that I truly want to own for at least the next five years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes I'll find something that's a little bit different, like Curate at the end of last year, which was you know a bit of a special situation, I guess you'd say. So that that kind of deviated from that at least a little bit. And I'm not completely opposed to doing things like that in the future, but I really want to focus my time and attention on 
on the kind of knowledge, like understanding Costco, that knowledge is cumulative in my mind. I can yeah, use yeah. that. I can use that for decades if I'm alive and investing. A lot of the other stuff for me is if it's a one-off hit, it just, it isn't as valuable. I don't think long-term. Yeah. Industry knowledge is very valuable. Unless the industry changes, then you can reuse that for stocks and it just kind of speeds up your whole process. That's what I've found. Yeah. hundred percent. Alex. So a question for you, just, you know, in terms of that you taking that model, great businesses, great management teams makes a ton of sense. How do you go about finding these opportunities? Cause you, you said clearly there's thousands of stocks out there and the biggest challenges, uh, is is really around finding those you know f finding what are the clues to find those companies do you use quantitative analysis you know what what are you what are you looking at uh that helps you find those businesses are you using twitter that you know good obviously you, you know other other investors what they're looking at yeah so it's been a combination of you know like i i, I did here recently i basically ran through uh five or six different u.s retailers that i when I got done with the exercise, I had a really good sense through how I felt they were positioned long-term and which names I really like. So I found found it helpful to really knock out an industry. So that's one way to go about it that I've found useful. The other one is definitely, uh, you know, networking people on Twitter. Uh, one, of the, one of the newer names that I've added is Spotify, which have had my good buddy Francisco and a couple other people sleep well, Andy. They've been in my ear telling me that they thought it was an interesting business for some time. So it took me a while to come around to their point of view, but it's definitely another way that I that I find ideas. And, you know, as I look at something like that, I don't know, I don't always do a great job of getting this done immediately. But as I look at something like Spotify, well, I'm going to expand that to UMG and WMG and understand the labels and, you know, just try to look through the look through the value chain and see what's going on here, what's changing and who is going to who's going to come out stronger on the other side. Yeah, that's a good idea. Could you talk about the Spotify thesis? Just because I I, that, I was really curious about that, and you know, just uh, it, it's an interesting business, and I, I don't know it that well, but yeah, I'd love to hear your take on it. I think the biggest thing for me on the Spotify thesis, as I think about it long term, is they came to the U.S. I think it was in 20, 2010 or twenty twelve. You know, obviously the brand really didn't have any relevance at that point in time. Over the course of the next decade. They're now in a position where they're well ahead of their main competitors, which are well-financed technology companies that obviously use their distribution advantages to help them in a major way. They're well ahead in terms of subscribers, and they're well ahead in terms of per-user uh, consumption. So those two facts for me are really interesting, and it helps it helps me to to frame it. I kind of think back to what would have what would you have looked at for someone like Netflix in 2013, 2014, 2015, to really come to the conclusion that they're a differentiated player that can continue to lead this industry. And I think a big part of it would have been, well, they have a bit of a first mover advantage and they obviously have a lead in terms of paying subscribers. And then they also had a lot more engagement than, than anybody else that existed at that time, which was effectively just Hulu, I guess. But um, so that's that's part of the thinking for me that that got me to a different conclusion on it than what I had had previously. And then now I look at some of the things they're doing in places like podcast or, you know, their ability to test new product offerings like they're doing now with this $1 ad light model. And I, I just look at the focus and vision that they have and they'll have stumbles along the way. But I look at the focus and vision that they have and I don't see any of that from their direct competitors. And I think as time goes by, that scale advantage they have, if they sustain it and, if, and that engagement advantage they have, if they sustain that. 
I think they'll really see meaningful scale benefits on the back end. But it's going to take a while to play out. I was going to ask you just a quick question on like the big, you know, the big contracts they're doling out, uh, you know, the uh, Joe Rogans, uh, et cetera. Do you see that as a challenge for just in terms of the economics getting transferred to the content creators versus the platform? I, that's the part that I'm struggling with, because right now you're in a situation you're going to get bidding. You, you know, you, you could see, you know, bidding wars. And that to me is not great for the platforms. No, I think that's 100 percent right. And as I think about those things, I I focus my attention again on who's going to be who's going to be the leader at the end of the day, who's going to be able to justify the levels of spend that will allow them to sign the best artists. And, you know, I think another way to think about this is a lot of the people, obviously, it's mostly musicians now, but a lot of the creators are going to be drawn to the platform that has the largest user base and the largest engagement, the ability. You know, I, I think of the deal they just did with Dax Shepard for Armchair Expert, which is a podcast. They can now, when you open the Spotify app, they can, you know, put a banner or whatever you want to call it in front of people who would be a likely audience member for that show who may have never found it otherwise. I mean, things like that are really beneficial for someone who, you know, in a place like podcasts where it's hard to get new reach and get people to commit to watching your show over and over again. That can be a huge deal that I don't know if other competitors are going to be able to do things like that. So I feel good about their positioning, but to your point, especially in the short term, we could see the numbers get bigger and bigger. Hmm. You know, maybe I just wanted to ask as far as, you know, your plans for your Substack, everything like that, like, do you, are you very happy with how it's going now? It, are there certain things, places you'd like it to go down the road? I'm just curious how you see that, like your business evolving. Yeah, it's been a, we, we just passed four months since it launched and uh wow it's not uh, long. <laughs> it was uh yeah four months ago was a little scary <laughs> i uh I, I feel a little bit better now as i i wrote to i wrote to the subscribers i guess it was a few weeks ago now that that it's at a point where they can be confident that it's going to be around for the long term i think it's important for me to let people know that they're not you know investing their time and money in something that's just going to go away so it has staying power which obviously feels great for me and mm -hmm. It's gone well, you know. It's a, it's funny. So, you so, leave, you so leave Al, the world. Just to put it into perspective, you launched your Substack four months ago, uh, but you your community, you know, the signs of hitting community started three plus years ago, right? You know, however, four plus years ago, right? Yeah, there was someone who commented on one of them that, hey, I've been reading your stuff. I think he said since Seeking Alpha, which is where I wrote before I wrote on Guru Focus. Wow. And, wow. My my response to him was, I'm sorry I put you through that because I've seen that old right I've seen that old writing and it was not good. So, <laughs> so I apologize for that. I, I have a question for you. Um, so high level, do you, like what? So you're on Substack, like just in terms of a platform itself. How do you view that? Like what what happens when you get to a certain size? You're like wait a minute, I'm giving these guys way too much money. Like you know what? Like what, what's your thinking there? Are you getting new? Are you getting discoverability on that platform? Talk to us about why Substack, why not just do your own newsletter? Yeah, from out of the gates, for me, I, I looked at other alternatives and the idea of having to manage the website, I barely even know what that even means when I say that, the idea of having to manage the website to deal with any sort of technical issues, to deal with the billing and just getting that. I mean, I talked to uh, Scuttleblurb, who's a, a guy who runs his own site and has a very good service. Uh, I, I tried to figure those things out. And for me, I was just like, this isn't worth the headache. I want someone who can deal with all these things and make my 
job, purely research, purely writing. And I, I don't want any of those headaches. So for me, it seemed like a worthwhile proposition, especially out of the gates. You know, as time goes by, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens if the, how big it gets and whether Substack gets competed down on the take rate that they have. We'll see what happens. But for me right now, it was, it was, it was a pretty easy choice, actually. This is the beauty of tech, isn't it? We see so many services you get now for free and they always say, try it for free and then maybe you can pay. But a lot of times you don't even have to. So it's one of these things, look at the scaling you can do. You don't have to do all those things. Maybe you do want to do them down the road, but you don't have to. So like tech has just made everything easier for people, you know, creators, people want to go out on their own. Yeah. Even getting it off the ground. I I mean, I I got delayed because I was trying to figure those things out. And then one day, I found out about Substack and it's literally a copy paste. And that's basically all there is to it. Just copy and paste out a word and you're ready to go. So, and I also think people are getting more familiar with the platform and people have their credit card information in there. It makes it easier to subscribe. You know, you, you feel a certain level of comfort with Substack.com being the billing provider, as opposed to, you know, scienceofhitting.com, just me directly. People might be a little (laughs) bit more, a little bit more concerned about that. So, right. Uh, and are there sectors like the way you think about it? Like, are there sectors that you're like, listen, you're a one man uh, show, uh, obviously phenomenal research, but uh, you know, you can't cover all sectors. Is there certain areas you wish, you know, you maybe would, you would hire a Substack junior, you know, to, to help out, right. And, and cover new sectors that you just simply don't have the bandwidth for. Yeah. I mean, I think about things like, you know, a lot of people focus on tobacco or a lot of these smokeless tobacco companies that I think are really interesting. And it's not, I can get my arms around if I dedicate the time to them. I just haven't done it yet. So something like that is really interesting. You know, I think an industry like medical devices is really interesting. If you can really understand what are the incentives of the decision makers, what's the regulatory risk. If you can understand all that, I, it's, it certainly seems like a place that has structural tailwinds. So I'd love to do things like that. For me, it always comes down to how much time we have to put in here and you know, realistically, how big could a position be if I, even if I find something interesting? So it's just a return on time or brain damage or whatever you want to frame it. <laughs> uh, Alex, I guess I'm not sure if you have the information, but uh, so you've got a lot of, you know, high profile uh, supporters. It's great. It's phenomenal to see on Twitter. I love it. it and and I, obviously, a lot of those are pro investors in, you know, buy side institutional investors, which is, you know, so beautiful. You're seeing this disruption where typically, historically, you know, they'd be using broker research, but now, you know, they can uh, send some of that, send some of the, that uh, commission your way, old commission, now send it to you direct. What, how would you say are, is your mix of institutional versus retail? Or, or I don't know if you have the ability to, to, figure that out. Yeah, I don't have a perfect read on it. All I all I mostly see is email addresses. But yeah, I see plenty of email addresses that are clearly uh, people who work at hedge funds or mutual funds or whatever it may be. And, right. you know, I think that I think the sales pitch for them is pretty straightforward. I, I worked at a firm that was paying me a lot more than $349 a year to to give them all of my time and effort. And now I'm selling that online for $349 a year. And it's 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 basically the same exact work that I was doing at my nine to five job at, as an equity analyst at an RIA. So it seems like a, a pretty cheap person to hire. <laughs> <laughs> this is the distribution power of the internet, isn't it? Think of how hard it would have been to start exactly. your own firm 10 years ago and now yeah. boom. That. Yeah, hundred percent. That's cool. It's amazing. Awesome. And you know what we should do, Scott? We should we, we should do a, a conference and get uh you know get Alex up there. Maybe we'll do it in Philly or something like that. Just get you know bring that 
bring the heavyweight researchers on Fitzwit and, and uh, do it up. Yeah. You know, do some pitching, do some drinking, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Go to some Flyers games. Let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Alex, what, uh, I guess got to ask top. So obviously you super concentrated portfolio. What's the sexiest stock you got right now that you're like, listen, uh, obviously, you know, you got 13 plus or, you know, you're, you're running a tight portfolio, but what's the stock any, anytime the market, you know, steps back, you're adding to it or, you, you know, that's where you, you put incremental capital. Yeah, we talked about Spotify a bit. I think that's a really interesting idea just for people to, to take a look at what the numbers have done over the course of the last five years, even, and look at what's happened with their gross margins and think about how important streaming audio is to the labels and just to think about where that industry is going and the things that Spotify is trying and people might disagree with me on the conclusions, but I think you'll see that this industry is in a vastly different place than where they were at five to 10 years ago. So that's one example. Um, I'll give another one that I don't own, but I've owned in the past is Yelp. I think it's an interesting business that effectively tried to do uh, over the phone, small, medium business sales for advertising for a long time. And I think what they found is that that wasn't really a very effective business model. They always had a, they had a decent ability to, to get people onto the platform and use it for reviews. They just couldn't really build a decent business around that. So what they've kind of moved towards is a lot more enterprise, kind of you know regional chains, things like that, buying advertising on the platform, and then also self-serve for, for SMBs. And I think they started to have some success there and it's allowed them to refocus on the product in terms of, you know, one example I see from them a lot when I'm walking around, say I'm at a restaurant and there's a bar next door, I'll get a pop-up saying, hey, someone reviewed this and gave this bar, you know, they'll give an example of a review for that place to try to nudge me to go there. So I think, I think they're starting to, to get their advertising muscle to work in a way that they really never have. So um, again, I don't own it right now, but it's a company I've followed for a long time. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And obviously if it works, that'll probably result in pretty good returns for the stock. It's fascinating that there's room for another company. When you look at like how aggressive DoorDash is being an Uber and just throwing money everywhere. It's good to hear, you know, if you, if you dig, you find these companies that they may not be as sexy as those other ones. They're not getting all the headlines, but they're finding ways to make money in a similar landscape. Yeah, and it's an interesting example of a company that was, you know, they were one of those sexy companies yeah. at one point in time. I think the, I think the stock topped out at like a hundred bucks a share. And March of last year, I think it was at fifteen, sixteen, seventeen dollars. Today it's probably at thirty-five or forty. So, you know, the market the market definitely doesn't think as highly of the company as they did a couple of years ago. And, you know, we'll see we'll see where the truth actually shakes out. Yeah, exactly. Great. Wow. Uh, really big thanks for uh, stopping by and uh, helping us, uh, you know, unbox how you look at stocks, how you look at picking stocks. Phenomenal success. Uh, you know, wishing you incredible continued growth for a phenomenal Substack, the science of hitting. So where you check out Alex Morris's Substack Science of Hitting and um, and in terms of Twitter, your Twitter, we have if you guys are watching right now, Grizzle yeah. Crew, you can see we have the Twitter right there for him. So if you're following us, make sure to follow him, too. A lot of value there. Alex, Thanks, you have to guys. come back, man. You have to come back soon. No, I, love, I had a great time. Let's definitely do it again. Right. Awesome. Cool. See you later. Thank you.